Remember last week um, we heard about the disciples uh, in, the, in the upper room locking the door. The doors were locked. And Jesus came and stood in their midst, said, Peace be with you, breathed on them, received the Holy Spirit, and told them to go and forgive or retain sin is in his name. And Thomas wasn't with them, so then the next week the Lord came back and again said, Peace be with you, showed him his hands and his side so that they knew it was him who was crucified, he who was crucified, and once again commissioned them to go out. And we find them now um, going fishing. You should find this somewhat curious. They were just locked in this room for fear of the, the leaders of the Jews, wondering if they would be next. And also, um, in, a, in a sort of state of alienation from God because all but John had deserted the Lord even at the cross. Peter had denied the Lord three times. And so the Lord coming to them and saying, peace be with you, was an act of, of healing the relationship with them. But also then he commissioned them to go out and continue doing ministry. And now we find them out of the room. So this is a positive step forward. But Peter says, I'm going fishing. It's hard to say, you know, some commentators will remark that it appears as though the disciples are kind of returning to their former way of life. Jesus is dead, you know, they, they don't really know what to do, so they're gonna go fishing. They know, they know how to do that. They were fishermen, they know how to go fishing. It's hard to say what they were thinking completely. So they're off going fishing. I don't know a lot about fishing. I don't know a lot about the outdoors because I don't like to go outdoors. I don't know anything about hiking or fishing or hunting or the sun. Um, <laughs> okay, I've been fishing a couple of times. It, you know, there's always, uh, there's always a reason to get a sunburn, I guess. Um, and, I, and I do know that fishing can be frustrating, can be a very frustrating thing, unless you're very, very patient, which I am not. Um, I prefer to fish at Safeway. Um, but uh, it can be very frustrating. So there, there they are in the boat all night. And they're not, you know, throwing out lines. They've got nets. Presumably with a big net, you can catch something, you would think. But they've caught nothing. And then they hear in the near morning, they hear a voice from the shore. There's some guy at the, on the shore. Now this is a a bunch of fishermen fishing all night, having caught nothing. They are professional fishermen, as it were, right? These guys have been fishing their entire lives. They've caught nothing. They're in the boat and some guy from the shore shouts to them, children, have you, have you caught anything? <laughs> you can imagine their response because they didn't, we're told they didn't realize it was Jesus. Right? They didn't realize. It. So if you were them, and somebody says somewhat pejoratively, children, have you caught anything? They've been going all night. Their response is a very firm and truncated no. That's what we're told. Have you caught anything? No. 
they're probably a little upset even at somebody, you know, asking them if they caught something. So then he gives them advice. You can imagine how this is going to go. Well, just, just cast it on the other side. If you cast it on the right side, you know, you'll catch something. Because they hadn't thought of that, right? There's only two sides, really, to cast the net. I'm sure they had tried the right side. So again, they don't know it's Jesus. It's just some guy yelling to him. It's Ed yelling to us from the shore. We haven't caught anything all, all, all night. And Ed is telling us what to do. You know, it's just some guy telling us what to do. They're probably thinking, you know, but they do it. I suppose they figure, might as well try it. So they do. And all of a sudden, the net is absolutely full of fish. Right? Clearly, this is a miracle. Clearly, something miraculous has happened because, you know, the fish were not there previously. They had gone somewhere else. And then, in the midst of that miracle, their eyes are opened, as it were. Jesus allows them to see who he really is. And they recognize that it is the Lord. And then Peter, who lacks, well, patience, a bit of discretion, as soon as he finds that it's the Lord, he just jumps into the sea and goes swimming to, to meet Jesus. Right? Because that's what normal people do. They just jump in the sea and swim. Well, that's what he did. And we're even told that this was a somewhat odd thing for him to do because the next thing we hear is, you know, the other disciples came in the boat for they weren't that far from the shore, right? But the knucklehead Peter, you know, who's just so excited, jumps into the sea and swims to see Jesus. He's so excited to see him. And when they get to the shore, there's Jesus um, with bread and fish on a charcoal fire. Now, why are we being told of seemingly such mundane experiences as Jesus cooking breakfast? What's the point of that? Well, there's a very specific point, all right? Jesus says to them, go and get some of your fish. He already has some fish there on the, on the, on the fire, but go and get some of your fish that you caught and we'll cook that. And what the Lord is trying to convey to them is, I'm not a ghost. I'm not merely an apparition. We're going to have breakfast together, and I'm going to eat that fish and that bread. Because although I am resurrected and I am changed, I am still the same Christ who ate with you right before I died on the cross. I am the same one who died and is now risen. And while there's something clearly changed about me, there is something still very real about me. This is why in the post-resurrection narratives, they're called, post you know, after the resurrection, the stories, we have these very mundane, seemingly events, like Jesus ate breakfast. It would seem odd to, I mean, he always ate breakfast, it would seem, or frequently he ate breakfast, but we were never told this before. The reason is to convey that he is still he is still human and yet, of course, divine. He still has some sort of physical property despite his resurrection. And so they consume uh, the bread and the fish 
and he's revealed as the resurrected Christ to his disciples. That's the first part. The second part has to do with this interaction he has with Peter. Now, we remember that Peter radically and tragically failed the Lord before his death, right? He, he denied the Lord three times. And this is, a, this is a horrible sin. This is a horrible thing that anybody might do to deny Jesus Christ, to deny even knowing him. It's hard to imagine. I mean, only under perhaps the, the most grave of threats or duress, a person might do that. But Peter really wasn't in that kind of situation. And he denied even knowing Jesus. I mean, we wouldn't even do that uh, with, with somebody who wasn't God, presumably, let alone God himself, who we love with our, all our hearts. This was, this was a betrayal. So in this instance or this interaction, what Jesus is trying to do is heal this relationship. Right? Peter is very, very important in the ministry of his disciples. He is the preeminent disciple. He is the first pope. Right? He holds pride of place amongst all the other apostles. And so it's, it's very important that, that Jesus heals this relationship and Peter knows that it's healed. And so he asks him three times, do you love me? And Peter starts, yes, I love you. And then he asks him again, Yes, I love you. And then the third time, Peter is exasperated, kind of wondering, well, you know, somewhat grieved. Why are you asking me again? Peter, has, he's kind of slow to come around. You know, the, the three times he's being asked to reassert his love kind of makes up for the three times he denied the Lord. But that's obviously what's going on. The Lord wants him to recommit himself. And so he does. But also the Lord instructs him after each time to tend or feed his sheep, to take care of his flock. His job is not to go back to fishing. His job is to take care of Christ's followers. And so historically, theologically, historically, for, for, all, of our, for all of our history as Catholics, um, this has been understood in particular relationship to Peter's role as the first pope, right? That, that the Lord is calling him to a very specific ministry to take care of his sheep, to take care of his flock. However, it also extends, extends for anyone who, who follows Christ. Because the, the interaction here is, Jesus asks, do you love me? Peter says, yes, I love you. And Jesus says, therefore, essentially, take care of my sheep. Now, this same sort of instruction happens for all of his disciples in other places. It's notable that it happens specifically for Peter because of his role as pontiff. But it also happens for all of us in other places, for all of his disciples in other places, that the Lord connects loving him with taking care of others. That it's our role to take care of each other. And I wonder, I wonder if we see, I mean, just as Catholics, as people of, 
Williams or I know we have a lot of visitors, I'm sure, but wherever you're from, whatever community you're from, do we see that as an essential role in our lives to take care of each other? Certainly, we, we want to take care of ourselves and our families, of course, and we ought to. But the Lord even commands us in the scriptures to take care of one another. This is an imperative. If we are people of faith and people who love him, we cannot merely have this relationship with Jesus that does not affect our daily lives, that does not affect the people in our midst, that the love that we have for God must be a love that radiates forth into taking care of those in our midst, those in our community. And so, just as Peter was given very specifically in the scripture passage, the commandment to take care of the Lord's sheep, we also can take this imperative as it's been conveyed to us throughout the scriptures. We can also take this imperative that we also must take care of one another. And so look for opportunities in your life. We must look for opportunities in our life to, to find people. The Lord will place people in our lives, maybe even people we don't want there, but he'll still put them there. And he will want us to help in some way. Not to take over their lives, not to micromanage their lives, but he'll want us to help them in some way. And if we look, and if we're open, we will see the Lord placing people there. And in, in those moments, that's where the call of discipleship takes place. That's where the call of discipleship finds its, its point of either yes or no. Please stand.